Looking around the room this morning, I know that some of you are already retired. You're enjoying retirement. Some of you are getting close to counting down the days. But for most of us, we have a little bit different definition of retired. We are tired yesterday, and we're tired again today, right? That often seems to be how life works, right? The wearisome of the world in which we live in. But the Bible has a lot to say on the subject we're going to deal with today, which is the idea of rest. Now, I read a statistic recently that was rather stunning. Over 40% of Americans, it is believed, get six or less hours of sleep a night. Our culture really doesn't, for the most part, embrace the idea of rest. Yet we know that without rest, we run into a myriad of health problems. That's also true spiritually, when we lack the rest that God promises to us. So as we look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 1 through 13 this morning, I want to encourage us to be looking at the importance of the idea of rest that the author of Hebrews is going to reference. Now, if you know anything about sleep, right, there's several stages to it, but probably the most crucial is REM sleep, or rapid eye movement, right, because it's during that period that your body is being refreshed and rejuvenated and readied for the next day. Well, we don't just need REM sleep at night. We need REM rest, period, spiritually speaking. And that's what the author of Hebrews is going to point us to this morning. So what, before we turn there, let's just do a little bit of brief recap to see how we got here where we are this morning. So at the very beginning of his letter, the unknown author of Hebrews says this, long ago at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So at the very get-go, the author of Hebrews challenges his audience and our view of who Jesus is. And he shows throughout the book, beginning with these verses, that beyond a shadow of a doubt, Jesus is better than anything or anyone else. Hallelujah. Amen, right? And so as he goes on, we're going to see that the author of Hebrews begins to interpret for his original audience, who were Jewish believers in Jesus Christ, he was interpreting for them the times they were living in, which were a time of chaos, of fear, a time when they didn't know what was going on. And he's going to take their history as a people and he's going to help them understand their present day and what they're going through. Because what they thought they would experience as a follower of Jesus Christ 
was vastly different than the experience they actually had. As they watched their culture denounce and persecute them, as they watched everybody else seeming to do well, but they were pushed to the side and wondering, God, what are you up to? Now, if you don't see that there are some parallels to the day in which we live now, I want to encourage you to be reading this book. Because right now we face the same, don't we? As followers of Jesus Christ. And so the author of Hebrews has some great things to share with us to help us keep our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. So, so far, here's what he's shown to us. He's shown us that Jesus is better than the prophets and the angels. And then he's instituted a warning, a warning against drifting away from this Jesus who is better than the angels and the prophets. Then he takes perhaps, other than maybe Abraham, the most important person in Jewish history, Moses. And he says, you know what, guys? Moses... God works some amazing things through him, but Jesus is better. And then he follows that up with yet another warning, and that's where we find ourselves today. There's a warning at the middle part of chapter 3 into chapter 4 against the idea of rebellion and unbelief, and that's where we're going to pick up. So over the last couple of weeks, Adam had been dealing with Moses and the analogy of the house, if you'll remember that, that Christ is the builder of the house, not Moses, and he offered a warning through Psalm 95, which he's going to pick up on again in this part of the passage, to not have their hearts hardened as the Israelites did in the desert. As they grumbled and complained against God, as they, as they said in Numbers 14, 1 and 2, they're like, it would be better if we just died than to experience what we're experiencing. And then Caleb and Joshua step up and they say, guys, if God did everything to this point to free us from Egypt, if he promised us the land that was flowing with milk and honey and our own eyes have seen it and we've told you this, what makes you think that God can't work in this situation despite your fears and trepidations? But they're still unwilling to believe in what does God say? He says, you want to die in this land? You got it. And so for the next several decades, they're going to do a lengthy death march all the way around the land that God had promised, but never stepping foot in until that generation was gone. So the author of Hebrews is picking up this really dark period in Israel's history, and he's connecting it now to those who he's writing to. And so we're going to look at, like I said, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. And as we do so, let's notice three things. Let's notice the promise of rest. Let's notice the path to rest. And let's notice the person who gives us rest. So the promise of rest, the path to rest, and the person who gives us rest. So rest plays a significant role in both the Old and the New Testament of the Bible. God rested after he created. That's what we learn in Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. God built rest into the rhythm of life after sin entered the world. 
by implementing the Sabbath day to have one day where the people, his people, could look back to when they had rest with him and look forward to a day where they again could. He even does some surprising things with rest. If you ever read Leviticus, when you come across chapter 25, you'll notice that every seven years he calls for there to be rest in the land. And then every seven times seven years, he implements a year of jubilee. And during those periods, he specifically instructs them not to reap and sow. So can you imagine how crazy to a human ear that would have, would have heard how that must have seemed? Wait a minute. How are we going to eat? How are we going to take care of our families? How are we going to do all this stuff? And God says, just rest and watch me care for you. And so rest continues to build as a theme. And yet, as we watch the Old Testament unfold into the New Testament, we see that this rest that God talks about still hasn't really materialized. And so the author of Hebrews picks up on this. And he says two things. He says there's a promise that the promise that God made that we would have rest still stands. But then he ties that to a warning to be careful not to fall short of that rest. It's interesting, isn't it, how the writer of Hebrews, time and time again, several times throughout his letter, connects both promises to warnings. And it seems strange to us because we often divide those passages, don't we? We look at the promises, and yeah, we want to hear about that, but the warnings, eh, no, don't want to go down that road. They seem like they could be contradictory. And yet, to the author of Hebrews, not only isn't he apprehensive at all about this, he doesn't see any contradictions. What he sees is a connectedness, a connectedness between promise and warning. Now, if you think about that from your own life, especially if you've been a parent, you get to understand this a little bit better, right? There's promises of things we want to do with our kids. But we also give them warnings, right? When they're young, we might say, don't touch a hot stove, don't cross the street without looking both ways, make sure I'm there when you're going somewhere. As they get older, right, things change a little bit, but we say, you know, listen, I want to know who's in the car with you. You better keep that music down in the car. You better be paying attention, right? All these things that come along with raising kids. So imagine for a moment, and I just thought of this from my own life. I have two boys. They love sports. They love baseball. They love football. So they're always asking, especially on the weekends, can we go to the park? Can we throw some ball? Right? So if I say to them, yes, you know what? Today is such a beautiful day. We've got to get outside. Let's go to the park. Go get the stuff ready, get the balls, get the bat, get the gloves. I'm going to grab some stuff. I'll meet you out front, but don't cross the street until I'm there. See, there was a promise. The promise is we're going to have a fun day together, but it was connected to a warning. And that's what the author of Hebrews is doing. He's connecting these ideas to say, no, 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 they're not incongruent. They're not separate. If you're listening to one, you'll listen to the other. So if you are really excited about the promises, then you'll be willing to listen to the warnings that come with them. Because remember the context. The author's audience contains some people who have begun to question whether following Jesus in their situation was worth it. And he has come out emphatically and said, it 
absolutely is worth it. The author says he wants them to know that the promise of rest still stands, but they won't experience it if they reject the good news. See where it says in verse 1, Therefore, while the promise of entering the rest still stands, let us fear any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For, he's tying back now to the storyline, for good news came to us just as to them. Who's the them? It was the people who were going to enter the promised land. He's saying good news was preached to them just like it was to us, and yet it didn't benefit them. The author says, listen, if you want to experience this promised rest, then you've got to be aware of what its enemies are. You've got to be aware of what will prevent you from experiencing it seriously. And that enemy here is the enemy of unbelief. We saw it right in Numbers 14 that we referenced a moment ago, where everything was just as God had said it. He had done all these miraculous things, right? They're a small nation that's growing in Egypt. Egypt becomes scared of them. They make them slaves. They're under hard labor. And God says, you know what? I'm going to intervene. And he does. And then they're being chased by Pharaoh and his massive army. And what happens? God opens the sea. They walk through. The sea collapses down on the, on the Pharaoh and his army. They've seen all of this. And yet, they're at a point where they're unwilling to see God for who he really is. Their problem, their enemies that were in the land that they were supposed to take were bigger, and their God and their mind was smaller. And so the author of Hebrews calls his audience to be on guard against such unbelief and the dangers that it brings. He's doing so knowing that Jesus said in John 10, 27 and 28, that this is true, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The author can write this warning confidently, knowing that a true follower of Jesus Christ will pay attention to what's being said. So even though a previous generation missed the promise of rest, God, in his graciousness, continues to offer it. He offers it on a specific day that the psalmist in Psalm 95 calls today. And what a glorious day today is. Just like he used the psalmist's words to remind them of the consequences of the previous generation's failures and what they would face if they turned back, that they would not find a place of rest, so he uses the psalmist's words again to encourage them. Look what he says there. Uh, he says, today, saying through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Listen as this God who pursues you is speaking. And now he's going to bring Joshua into it. Now, he's already dealt with the prophets, he's already dealt with the angels, he's already dealt with Moses, so now he brings another central figure 
from the Old Testament, from Israel's history, Joshua. Joshua is best understood as being the second in command to Moses, the leader who is being raised up to take over for Moses. We see him first in Exodus 17, where the Amalekites attack, and Moses says to Joshua, get some men together, we need to form a resistance, and Joshua does. But it's really in Numbers 13 and 14, which Adam referenced last week, where we see the character and the faithfulness of Joshua. He's one of the spies who sent into the land to scout it out. He comes back and he's only one of two who says to the people, it's just as God said it would be. And he's able to provide this to us. So in the midst of a people who are rejecting God, Joshua stood as somebody who says, I'm casting my lot with him. And so then we come and it says, Joshua and Caleb, who were among those who explored the land, tore their clothes. So they're, you know, tearing the clothes, right, is, is a sign of, of mourning and of sadness. And he says, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly, imagine standing up in front of all those people. The land we passed through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into this land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will, not might, not could, will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will devour them. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. So do not be afraid of them. So Joshua stands up with Caleb and he says, listen, guys, we have nothing to be afraid of because we know God is on our side because of who he is, not because of who we are. We can trust him because he's made himself, he's shown himself trustworthy this entire time. But they wouldn't believe, right? And so for all these years, they wander around and eventually it gets to the point where that generation dies off and it's time to now go into the promised land. And Moses is not going to enter. So we see that at the end of his life, Moses commissions Joshua and he tells him, listen, you're going to take over. He dies. And then the Lord comes to Joshua and he says in Joshua 1, 1 through 3, after the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, son of Nun, Moses is aid. Moses, my servant, is dead. Now then, you and all these people, get ready to cross the Jordan River into the land I am about to give you to the Israelites. I will give you every place where you set your foot, just as I promised to Moses. So the very beginning of Joshua's time as leadership is saying, Joshua, you're the guy that I'm going to use to take them into this land that I promised. And for all his years of life, Joshua faithfully serves God. And then at the end, as he knows his time is coming, he gathers together the leaders of Israel, the judges, the elders, and he says to them, I'm very old. I'm not going to be around much longer. But continue to follow God. And he charges the people. He says, you've got to choose. Who are you going to follow? Follow God. 
and we see that Joshua dies, right? And after he passes, things go well for a while. There's peace that the people of Israel experience, but then we come to the book of Judges. And in Judges chapter 2, verse 10, here's what it says. It says that, if I can find it, tells us that Joshua died, and the generation who followed him died, and a new generation came up. And they didn't know anything about God and the works he had done for Israel. So they go back into a place where they're rebellious, where they harden their hearts, where they're unwilling to listen to and follow God himself. Joshua's life was pretty incredible, wasn't it? His name in Hebrew and Jesus' name in the Greek translation are the same, Yeshua. And they mean to save or deliver. In the midst of an unbelieving generation, Joshua's faith shines brightly. And yet, as we come to this point in the book of Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews is going to place Joshua back in his right perspective. Yes, God used him. But there's someone better, someone more significant, someone greater who is coming. And we're going to see that in just a moment. So we see the promise. Now let's look at the path to rest. And let's notice three things in the path. First, it requires fear. Look at verse 1 again. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. We need to take seriously the danger of neglecting the salvation God offers us and the rest that comes with it. The author is quite clear. Look at the following verses to see. He says, For good news came to them just as they came to us, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed entered that rest, as he has said, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the heavenly day in this way. And God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in the passage, they shall not enter my rest. So he's going back again and he's like, listen, you need to take seriously what God says. You need to take his warnings seriously. So, Lord willing, in a few weeks, my family and I are going out to Colorado for vacation. And this will be the first time my kids step foot on an airplane. And as you can imagine, they're pretty, pretty excited about it. So, quick show of hands, how many of you have ever flown before? So, the vast majority. How many of you have flown more than once? How many of you, when the flight attendant comes on the intercom, and talks about the oxygen masks and the flotation device, listen intently. Bill, I, I could see you doing that. Yeah, I could see that. Right? All right, so far less hands went up on that, right? Now, imagine if you knew ahead of time that your plane was going to go down in a body of water. Would you listen more intently to what they were going to tell you? You 100% would. Right now, imagine how much more important the warning that God gives in his word 
about missing his rest is. Because this isn't like a 1% chance it could happen, it's not a 10%, it's not a 50, it's not a 75. It's a 100% chance that if you miss his rest, you will be separated from him. Woo! I think I'd listen to the warning, right? And the instructions that he gives. The warning the author gives is not meant, now listen, this is important, because this is where we get tripped up. The warning the author gives is not meant to cause us to be, have a nervous fear or to lead to doubt about our salvation. That's not what he's going after here. It's meant to help us see the seriousness of unbelief and the danger that it poses. Don't ignore the loving pleas of both the human and the divine author of the book of Hebrews. Check your heart. Consider what's being said. Test it. And listen to these warnings, knowing that they are given for your benefit because God loves you. So the first one was fear, the importance of a healthy, godly fear. Secondly is faith, because they were not united by faith with those who listened. So those, now just imagine for a moment, right? They're in Egypt. God leads this miraculous rescue. He provides for them as they leave, right? I mean, can you imagine that you're leaving a hostile nation and the people are coming out and they're giving you all their valuables, right? But that's what God does for them, right? He's, they see that, right? And now he's, he's leading them to this promised land. And yet, despite all they saw, they were unwilling to believe. They didn't have faith that God was who he said he was and would do what he said he would do, right? That's why there's that story in the New Testament Gospels, right, where Jesus tells this story of a man, a rich man and a poor man, and they both die, and the rich man is in hell, and he's looking up, and he's like, tell my brothers about this, and he's like, listen, they have Moses. If they're not willing to listen to him, they're not going to believe any other miraculous thing either. They were unwilling to listen to what God had to say. There was no faith that produced action. So let me ask you, do you believe God is who he says he is in the scriptures and that he will do what he says he will do? Is your faith leading you to humbly trust and follow him? So we have fear and faith, and now this last one. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest. So we have fear, faith, and fight. This life can be wearisome, can it? It can be disheartening, it can be discouraging when we look around and we see what's happening in our world. It leads us to wonder, God, what are you up to? It can seem like things are heading headlong in the wrong direction. And yet, look at what he says. He says, strive to enter the rest. Now, here again, we see something that seems to be a contradiction, right? Because why? When we hear the word strive, we hear the word work. But that's not the author's point. He's not saying work to enter your rest. 
He's saying strive. He's saying pursue it, be diligent, persevere. Don't give up. Enter the rest he has promised. And then now those three points come together in verses 10 and then 12 and 13. So 12 and 13 are pretty well known. It says, for the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing the division of the soul and of the spirit, of joints and of the marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. God's word is living and active. It's powerful. It's filled with energy. It's trustworthy. It's true. His word has the power. I like how one, put it, uh, one theologian put it. His word has the power to invade into the deepest parts of our heart and mind, exposing what we really believe and think. Now, if you believe that is true, where should that lead you? Two things, and we're almost finished. It should lead us to stop striving to hide our sin. See what it says? Everything is going to be exposed. There's nothing hidden that he doesn't see. So when we think like Adam and Eve did in the garden, that we can just cover up our sin, we're only fooling ourselves. So we stop striving to cover up your sin. But secondly, stop striving to make your life about your works. Now, what I just said is easier said than done, right? It's all, our life is often marked, isn't it, by these two things. We want to minimize the sin. We want to cover it up. We don't want others to know about it. But we do want them to know when we're doing really well. And the call here is, no, rest from both of those. Rest from both of those, right? In this life, when you need rest, there's a lot of alternatives that we try out, right? Instead of rest, maybe we take a hot shower. Maybe we slap some cold water on our face. Maybe we drink copious amounts of caffeinated coffee and Red Bull and, um, and five-hour energy. Maybe we turn on the lights, maybe we blare loud music, maybe we go outside for a run, right? Because we're like, I can't rest. Well, there's a spiritual equivalent to that too, isn't there? We mask our lack of rest through numerous good things. We may be at church for every event. We might put on our Sunday face and use our Sunday lingo to make others think that everything is just great in our lives. We may work hard to prove ourselves. We may make sure our family looks perfect. But look what the author says. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did his own. Right, he goes back now to Genesis. And after God has created, it says on the seventh day he rested. He goes back and he says, guys, that, that statement at the very beginning is meant to point us to the rest that we can only find in him.
God's word, his truth, and this was something Adam had written. He was gracious enough to send me over his notes that he had prepared earlier this week, and I really, really, I appreciated everything he had put down, but I really appreciated this in particular. God's word, his truth, has the power to penetrate our hearts, turning us from sin towards Christ, thereby giving us rest from our works, because here it is, God offers rest from trying to hide ourselves from him because of our sin and prove ourselves to him through our works. So we see the promise, we see the path. Lastly, we see the person. Now, we'll come back to this in just a second, but I want you to take a look at me with me at Psalm 3. I said there were a lot of passages on rest. Here's one that's really, really interesting. So the backstory is that David is writing this as his son Absalom and his army are chasing David down to kill him. And David's come to a place, and look what he says, O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried out to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Now look what he says. I lay down and sleep. I woke up, and the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of my many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. So David is being pursued to be killed, And because of what God has done in his life, he's able to lay down in that moment and rest. Now, what the author of Hebrews is talking about is sort of a now but not yet type of thing. It's now that rest is available to us, but it's not yet because there is a future time when we'll fully experience that rest. And he notes it here in Joshua. He says, for if Joshua had given him the rest, God would not have spoken about a, a later date, another day. He would not have called us to hear his voice and not harden our hearts, right? And a day is coming, Revelation, the last book of the Bible says, where he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. There will be no more night, there will be no need for the light or a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. So there's a future sense to this, but let's not lose sight of the present sense, because that's what David experienced as he was fleeing Absalom. He he wasn't yet fully experiencing the rest that God would ultimately give him, but he was experiencing rest in the midst of trial and tribulation. And that same rest is available to us. So as we close, I want to share a quick little story um, of John Wesley, a theologian, pastor, author, hymn writer. Several denominations trace their lineage from him. And on Sunday morning, January 25th, 1736, Wesley was on a ship back to Great Britain from Georgia. And on that ship was a group of German believers that 
we would know as the Moravians. And here's what he wrote in his diary for that day. At seven, I went to the Germans. I had long before observed the great seriousness of their behavior, of their humility, that they had given a continual proof by performing those servile offices for the other passengers, which none of the Englishmen would undertake, for which they desired and would receive no pay. And here's what they would say. It was good for us to do this for our proud hearts, and their loving Savior had done more for them. And every day had given the occasion of showing a meekness which no injury could move. So no matter what people did to them, they weren't rattled. There was now an opportunity of trying whether there were delivered from the spirit of fear as well as from that of pride, anger, and revenge. So he's saying something happened this morning that would truly show what was going on in their lives. And here's what it was. In the midst of the psalm wherewith their service, their church service on the ship, began, the sea broke over, split the mainsail in pieces, covered the ship, and poured in between the decks. And if the great deep had already swallowed us up, a terrible screaming began among the English. But the Germans calmly sung on. I asked one of them afterwards, were you not afraid? He answered, I thank God, no. I asked, but weren't your women and children afraid? And he replied mildly, no, our women and children are not afraid to die. Now, guess what he did, what John Wesley did after that? He took stake of his own heart, and he said, you know, that peace and that rest that I see in these Germans, I don't have. And so he cried out to the Lord, and as soon as he did that, he went to the other English passengers, and here's what he said. He said, from there I went uh, to their crying, trembling neighbors, the English, and pointed out to them the difference in the hour of trial between him that feared the Lord and him who didn't fear him. At 12 o'clock, the wind subsided. This was the most glorious day which I have hitherto, old English, seen. This is the most glorious day I've ever experienced. So he almost died, but in almost dying, he saw in the lives of other fellow believers a peace and a rest that he himself, though he was ministering in a, in a debtor's colony, had not yet experienced and he rejoiced that God now at last had brought him to that place of rest. So, where do we find rest? You see, in the passage, the author of Hebrews says that he references the Sabbath day. He alludes to the, uh, the promised land of Canaan, and he references Joshua. And as he does so, he's doing that to point out that Jesus is superior to each of them. He's superior to the Sabbath day because the rest he provides is complete. It's not just one day of the week. He's superior to the promised land because he's ultimately going to provide another promised land 
in the new heavens and the new earth. That's not of this earth. And he's superior to Joshua because the rest he will provide is not a temporary rest in the land like Joshua provided, but an eternal rest, one that is unchanging, and most importantly, one that will be experienced face to face with him. So perhaps the most famous passage in rest in the Bible is this one from Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. I want to ask you guys to stand. We're at the end here. I want you to read this along with me. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Why could Jesus make this promise? The writer of Hebrews at the beginning of his book tells us why in verse 4 of chapter 1. He says that after Jesus had finished his work, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. He himself has rested from his work, and he now provides rest to those who will trust in that work. Today is that day. Today is the day of salvation. Will you listen to Jesus' voice? Will you come to the only one who can provide you with the rest that your soul seeks? True rest, this is Adam's slide, is only found in Christ. Let's pray. Amen. Father, we are grateful that there is still a day called today where rest is available for our weary and sinful souls. God, my prayer is that for each of us, that we would strive for that place of rest, that we would not give up, that we would not become so discouraged that we stop, but instead, Father, that we continue to look to you, to your Son, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy before him endured the cross and now has sat down at your right hand, where he makes intercession for us. God, may we understand the importance of rest in our life and may we find that place of rest that only Jesus Christ provides. We ask this, we pray for it, and we believe it because Jesus finished his work and is now resting, and we give thanks for it in his name. Amen.